morning, Iris. Good morning. How are you, Carl? I'm doing fine. I want to welcome you back to A Life in Biography. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. Yeah, for a second appearance. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking today about uh, the poetry of biography, or maybe we should call it the biography of poetry. <laughs> you're, you're both a uh, biographer and a poet, and we're going to be discussing, you're going to be reading um, six of your poems uh, from your book, West Fire Archive. Maybe you could say something about the title. Sure. Um, the title comes from, um, you know, the idea of uh, being in um, the archives. So the, the book is divided into three different sections, and each section uh, thinks about an archival box. And the first archival box is um, looking at biography, um, the biography of Charmian Kittredge London. The second is looking at the autobiography, so looking at my life as it is in the West, um, in a place that was being destroyed by wildfires. And then the third section is really looking at our definition of the West, right? Um, that that kind of androcentric um, idea of the West that's, you know, false. It's a great idea for a book. Uh, and it's a great thing for a biographer to do who can write poetry. Unfortunately, I'm not a poet. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're ahead of me there. Uh, and one of the frustrations or what can be a frustration in biography is people uh, generally go to biography to read about a biographical subject like Charmian in London uh, or one of my subjects, and they're not there to read about the biographer. And yet the odd thing is, of course, that the way the biography turns out has a lot to do with the biographer <laughs> and the biographer's thoughts and feelings. And it's why um, I did a previous program with uh, Robert Hamlin, who uh, wrote a book called Plutarch Redux. Uh, Hamlin is a biographer, but he's also a poet, and he's also reflected on the nature of biography and, in a sense, uh, what, it, what it means to look at the world through a biographer's or, in his particular case, Plutarch's eyes, so to speak, if Plutarch could be uh, recreated for contemporary times. So let's, let's, uh, let's start. Um, right. Why don't you read uh, a poem and uh, you can say what you like about it and perhaps I'll have a response too. Great. And I, I do want to say that part of what brought me to writing poetry about biography was because I write about subjects that um, aren't traditionally seen. And so following the exact path of biography didn't work for my subjects. So um, for me as a poet, it helped to lyrically think about this, um, this character. So I started with poetry and then went to biography. Um, so you'll see in this poem, it's called Smiling into Ruins. Um, the, the dilemma that I, that I was in when I learned about Charmian's life. Smiling into the ruins of Wolf House. There are the tall trees that blaze in the night, hungry rockets of blue fire. Then there is the smoke that lingers like a question for years to come. What's left after the great fire are stones, still blackened and stacked, murmuring moss. When the photographers come to the ranch, 
He's been dead 30 years. Charmian stands tall in the doorway where once they had imagined a door wearing a sweater the color of sky. She is smiling at the camera. She is surrounded by the ruins. You won't know this photo. There, this isn't the understory that was left to survive under the forest that's grown up around this ruin. It isn't written on the placards at the state park. It has been buried in the innards of a cement building. Still, there she is at the threshold, not a door, something more, something that feeds us as we pass. Makes me want to write poetry. <laughs> <laughs> the last line, something that seeds us as we pass. Um, I don't know if you want to comment it or not, but it's so it's so resonance. It's so suggestive. Well, I, I'd love to comment. I mean, it has a lot to do with the you know the site that I'm writing about is the the ruins of Wolf House or is the mansion that Jack London and Charmian built and never got to move into because it burned down several weeks before they moved in, but they kept the ruins and it became this kind of place where they always visited. And, and um, after Jack died, Marmion would go there uh, just to, you know, feel, you know, centered in her life. And um, there was these photographs as I was writing the biography, there was these photographs that I found by Hansel Meath, the, um, you know, she was the Times, Time Life um, photographer, um, brilliant photographer of Charmian in, late, in, late in her life, standing in front of the ruins, smiling. And um, I hadn't seen these photographs anywhere. And there's a whole series of them. And um, when I found that, um, it really, that, that idea of something that seeds us as, as we pass is you know, in the ruins, so in this redwood forest where this fire happened, all of these new trees grew. And for me, the destruction of her life, from that, I grew. I grew into wanting to write biography. Yeah, that's a, that's a great image. That's a great way of thinking of it. And biography so often deals with wrecks and ruins and the ability to try, try, try to recover. Um, a subject or a place or a time. Um, one of my biographies uh, of Amy Lowell, the original title was Recovering Amy Lowell, because I felt that she had been buried in all kinds of misguided uh, commentary about her. Uh, Absolutely. You know, 100% yeah. on that one. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, the uh, biography was, uh, was titled Amy Lowell Anew, uh, I wouldn't have thought of that title, except the marketing people at the publisher said, oh, oh we, we can't do Recovering Amy Lowell. And I said, why not? And they said, well, it sounds like maybe she was had a drug habit or something. <laughs> <laughs> marketing people think of things that poets and biographers never think of. I think. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and sometimes you have to go with it. Well, you don't you certainly don't want people to think of it that way. No, not at all. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, let's go aboard the snark in this second poem. All right. So um, just to say quickly, the snark was the boat that the, the small yacht that Jack and Charmian had built um, in, um, they started in 1905 and they set sail in 1907. Um, and this poem is about that journey, um, which uh 
the journey was told through Jack's perspective and that's the way the general public remembered it. And so um, when I wrote my biography, I got to see her diaries and um, her letters. And then um, also she wrote a whole book about their experience on the snark, the log of the snark, which is a really beautiful book. Um, and so this poem is in conversation with that. Make them float in your mouth. If you want a story, look for it. Begin with the idea of seven years. Imagine a boat. Build it from paper and ideas. Sail it into the hiss of lava as it enters the sea. When you reach your first destination, ride a 75-pound surfboard and fail all day. Watch the plantation workers cleave sweet fruit with machete again and again until the story you've told yourself begins to stutter and spit. Go to Molokai on the 4th of July and see for yourself the small girl who, missing a nose or an arm and covered with sores, wears sequin clothes and dances. You have to sail on past empty pockets and bank accounts. Watch your itinerary dissolve in the water next to the Australian yacht converted for blackbirding. See the machete lines carved into the teak door. You have to lose all of your water and then be blessed with a storm. You have to endure sores the size of baseballs that seep and cling to your calves and thighs. You have to go up river into the luscious green tangle of unknown until the flowers emerge, red, hibiscus-like, large enough to contain the whole sunset syrupy sky. You have to find that island, make it float in your mouth. How did you come up with that title? <laughs> I don't know exactly. Um, but the idea of conceiving a story, you know, from your imagination and, um, you know, they had this like version of the snark that they, that they had in their mouths and their minds. Right. But the, the real story was really treacherous. Like they should have died on that journey, but nobody admitted that in what they wrote. And so um, what they really found out on that journey didn't, didn't come through all of the public writing. And so for me, that idea, what they found on the journey internally, you know, was much more important. And that's what this, like, like Charmian became a writer aboard the snark. She finally, um, you know, she had published before, but it became this like coming out story, you know, this coming out journey for her. And so that, that title kind of encapsulates that for me. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, what the poem makes me think about is the imagination uh, and people often think of the imagination as um, spontaneous um, of the moment, so to speak, uh, imagination coming out of a certain inspiration. But in a way, the poem says also, you have to work at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's a really uh, interesting way to look at it, uh, almost as a, uh, as a kind of uh, discipline. Uh, and that it's something you have to savor. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily arrive naturally and on time, uh, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's kind of like the idea of um, biography. You know, it's, it's 
when you go to the archives, what you need doesn't just immediately arrive. You know, it's a it's a it's a practice of sitting and 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 waiting and, and you know, or literally wading through the archives in order to find one letter or one thing. And I think the whole story can change from that one thing that you find. So it's that waiting and letting things happen and, and believing that, you know, change can happen. Yeah, it's a journey. It's a voyage. And uh, although we go looking for things as biographers, uh, we often find things we weren't looking for. Yes, and, that's and it, <laughs> Yeah, it, as you say, it, it can change the story. That's right. So what's next? All right. So next is called A Ship is a Dream in a Snowstorm. And this is written, this is part of the first series of poems I wrote on Charmian, um, which were written off of her di unpublished di diaries about um, their journey aboard the Dirigo, which was a three-masted ship that they um, they sailed on from, um, they boarded in Baltimore and sailed around Cape Horn to Seattle. And it was a really exciting journey. I mean, um, it was they were on a big ship, there were sails, I mean, and they were kind of romanticizing that she and Jack the whole time, because this is um, 1912. So the, you know, sailing on a three-masted ship was, it was, you know, it wasn't as popular then. It wasn't how things were being done. Um, it was more and more rare. And so um, they were like trying to experience this for the last time. And so they, she kept this diary, but in the diary, you see, you know, Jack had been on a binger in New York right before they got on. And so you see just her frustration with him, um, but also she's, you know, writing again, she's creating, this becomes a book she never publishes. And, and so this is um, about that experience. A ship is a dream in a snowstorm. No one can tell you what you can't see under until you've been under there yourself. Icebergs, for example, are pristine rising up, but under hide and ice so old and thick, it smells foul as ammonia. Below the stove that keeps them warm, totters on the brink, gas fumes pour into their rooms. Nothing to do but rise to the surface for air, their heads pulsing as snow falls she paces the deck and marks the dream with the braille of footsteps. Dwarfed by oil skins and boots, night inks her orbit. The crew say it hasn't even begun to get cold. Snow powders the deck. When she looks up between squalls and clouds, five jewels of the Southern Cross sharpen. Well, I don't think you can put that into prose. It has to be a poem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, that's why I had to start with poetry as a way to get into um, understanding who Charmian was. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of lyric biography out there. Um, when I started writing it, I started reading more of it. And, um, it's it's a different way to enter a story, you know, and it and it and it asks the imagination to do more work because you know in poetry you have these gaps, you know, it's, you know poetry speaks the unspeakable. It speaks the things that we can't get down in prose, and so I think the idea of um, 
using poetry to write lyric biography helps us tell the emotional story of a character, the, you know, what, what, what we can't just like put into the prose right away. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Um, I'm also thinking um, there aren't that many poets who are biographers. There yeah. Are, there are a few. Uh, Daniel Mark Epstein is one and that I can think of. Therese um, uh, Savota. Yes, that's right. Yes, I yes. renewed her, her biography. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's a wonderful poet and a wonderful biographer. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm attracted to that. I think that's that's a very, very interesting. And there are poets. Um, I have some favorite poets like uh, Constantine Cavafy and mm. uh, the Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert and the Irish poet Sheila Wingfield, uh, who uh, they're not writing biography, but they write about historical figures in a way that when you read the poems, they are biographical. They're biographical meditations uh, in a really interesting way. Um, a poet has just died at 92, Richard Howard, who's mm -hmm. famous for his uh, Robert Browning-like monologues, often inhabiting the voice and the figures of historical figures. So there is this connection. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, Honoree Jeffers um, wrote The Age of Phyllis, which is um, a biography um, about Phyllis Wheatley. Um, that's it's told through, you know, the same perspective as kind of like what I'm doing with with Charmian. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she writes she also writes she doesn't write biography, but she writes um, fiction as well. So the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois was her you know, novel. It's getting a great deal of attention right now. Yeah, I have that on my list to read. It, it looks good. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And somehow appeals to the biography in me. I think biographer in me, I think just the title itself is so, so intriguing. Yeah, uh, completely. And the, the way she goes into the story is you'll like that because of the, it's kind of a uh, circuitous, the way that you kind of go into biography. You know, you have to go down this corridor to find this corridor, you know, right. like a labyrinth. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes that means it's going to be lengthy. It's a long novel. Uh, yeah. People often complain about long biographies, and sometimes they're too long, but sometimes they really need to be that long. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a great example would be um, the biography of Virginia Woolf, um, Hermione. Lee, yeah. Yes, Lee. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I know I have the same problem. Probably <laughs> it's probably worse than yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is early here, so I'll give myself. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite biographies, and it's very long, you know. Yeah, quite so. Yeah. So right, what led you to the next poem? Sure. Um, I'm going to read a, a formal poem. It's, it's a pantoum, um, which is a, you'll, you'll hear repetition in the poem. Um and this is called Hands in Your Pockets. And it's, it's actually a found poem. Most of the lines come from her diaries um, about this time. This is also set on the Dirigo. Oh, this is a kind of poem that I might actually be able to write. <laughs> yes, you could just steal, steal lines and then re reconfigure them. Yeah. Hands in Your Pockets, aboard the Dirigo, 1912. History sings in our faces, a tiny little nightmare under moderate but baffling winds, before squalls and rain. You get your first deep sea color now. History keeps singing in our faces. Indigo, milky, frothed waves, tossed in moderate but baffling winds. 
your first deep sea color, what you call caramel blue, under the white froth of rocking waves, sailing through a circular storm, do not feel equal yet, even on waves smooth as caramel blue. Work itches in your fingertips like a circular storm. Wretched night of hive of mind, do not feel equal yet. Stand with your hands in your pockets. Work itching your fingertips. Even when we are all going to the bottom, that wretched night, mind like rain, like a Russian song, catching in the pocket of the throat. At the bottom, a tiny nightmare, like a man falling from the rig, like a dog safely tethered to the deck by a string. Before the squalls as rained, weave into needlework more than a thread of truth, because history will sing into our faces like a tiny little nightmare until our machinery of life resumes. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you. It was it was a complicated journey, you know, um, or on the Jericho. <laughs> Um, because she was so grateful that Jack London was, you know, dry. Like he wasn't drinking finally. He he, he went through like, you know, uh, a detox the first week and then was finally sober. And so they could, they could work together again. And they, they had a wonderful working, you know, working relationship. Um, but by 1912, it had been a long, you know, long journey of, you know, he only has a few years left to live at that point. So um it was it was a tough journey, and she was really wanting to break away and be her own writer. She was starting to feel that way at that time, and so on the when they were on the Jericho, she finally felt like she was freed of all the duties of being Jack London's wife, and she could just be a collaborator. So they wrote a novel together on that on that journey, um, the Valley of the Moon, um, and. It was, you know, in my biography, that was the first time someone published that that had that, that she had helped collaborate on it, you know. And so to find that, I was like, I got to work on this in poetry first. <laughs> yes, I understand. I think uh, in poems like this, too, they're, they're about specific instances and people. But as you go along, you, you come to this line, even when we are all going to the bottom, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's just fascinates me because I think that's what brings people to poetry and to biography, the fact that they're reading about other lives, but in a sense they're reading or certainly identifying with those lives as in some sense their own. Exactly. Yeah, that's it's meant to be universal as well. And I think that's what's so powerful about poetry, like you said, is that, you know, we're writing about very specific things, but because of that, it makes it more intimate with the reader. You know, you you can identify with things because they're so um, specific and then they, they kind of like you have connotations into your own life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So is is the water cell escape next? Yes, it is. And um, would you mind if I introduced it a little bit? No, no. Go ahead. Please. OK, because I think it's important. So. One of the things whenever, before I wrote my biography about Charmian, the thing that I would always hear first is, well, do you know she had a, an affair with Houdini? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, of course, everyone loves that that tidbit. And she did, in, indeed, she did. She, um, I mean, she had a relationship with Houdini that lasted just several weeks in New York. 
um, they had met in um, 1913 um, at a, uh, a performance in um, Oakland. Um, and she and Jack were there when Jack was still alive. And they, Jack loved the show, went back three times and of course was called up on the stage to be part of the act. And they ended up all having Thanksgiving together and were just very good friends, the four of them. And then when Jack died um, in 1916, he sent, um, Houdini sent a letter of condolence to Charmian and said, well, if you're ever in New York, you know, come see me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm living here. And so uh, Charmian, a few years later, is going to New York to work on getting a book deal for her own biography on Jack London called um, The Book of Jack London. And so she tells Houdini and she goes to it. He's like, oh, you got to come to my show. And so she goes to his show and um, they hit it off immediately. Um, of course, Houdini is married at the time, but Houdini pursues Charmian and they have a, a short... Um, affair. Um, and at first, you know, Charmian, who's just rid herself of Jack London's like intensity, right? Um, is like, I mean, she loved Jack, but she also loved being free of the the burden of being his wife. And, sure. and so all of a sudden, Houdini, who's just like Jack London, like super intense, like loves to be a center of attention, obviously, or he wouldn't be a magician, you know? Um, or whatever you call that when you escape from water cells. <laughs> um, but so she quickly tires of his intensity because he forces that intensity towards her. And so this poem is kind of kind of asking us to reconsider the idea that, um, you know, Houdini is at the center of that story of the affair that they have, because actually Charmian step is the one that steps away from it because she's like, oh, I can't do this. You know, this is the same thing over and over again. I want to have my own life. So this is called the water cell escape. That the heart is not shaped like a trick box, though velvet tongued, though bottomed with a spring loaded door that opens when pressed enough. That one can feel sealed in that smooth fogged glass. The night she met Houdini, the crowd of hundreds hushed as they watched his daring escape. That the chains were heavy and marked the skin and two of the extras disappeared. First, her sickened husband, then Houdini's young wife. That the heart is not shaped like a trick box, letters folded into tiny stars up against the milk star sky of a clear night. That you have to fold your body just right, the week she spent in New York like chambers of an ever-turning nautilus shell. That the water was cold, that it rose fast, that always at the center of the shell there was nothing solid to hang on to. That underwater, everything looks and sounds like a dream. Hair blooms, chains loosen. That the heart is not shaped like a trick box, and one can walk off that dark stage alone to nothing but the custody of stars. Well, that's grand. Thank that you. The poem has a kind of grandeur to it that I, I really like. Um, that's hard to bring off in a biography, but certainly works in a poem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's where, you, like I said, it's, I had to work out all the, you know, I felt really 
this, um, a lot of emotions, like the emotional landscape of, of Charmian's life was really intense. And so as a way to work through that, like, you know, the, 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 the way of, um, not feeling anger every time someone said, did she really have an affair with Houdini? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was, I had to write this poem, um, which kind of gave her, gave her power again, you know, cause she, she needed that agency for me in my mind as I wrote the biography. Because if you read the diary entries, it's very clear the story. But even Houdini's biographer did not did not understand that um, uh, Charmian wasn't wasn't um, she's the one that stepped away from from that affair because she wanted her own life. Yeah, yeah. Well, my you know the heart is not shaped like a trick box. Is such a suggestive you know um, what 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 is Houdini appealing to? I mean, as sensational, exciting, intense as it all is, it it it's not enough in a sense. You know, it's it it consumes itself, right? In the way that the the heart does not. She's looking for something more than that. Clearly, yeah, for sure. And um, it was fun to use. You know, I'm trying to use the metaphor of the water cell. You know, his actual trick where he yeah chained upside down in a, you know, a glass box. And um, it was, it was fun to use that kind of as a metaphor for the, um, the, what she felt like she would be encased in if she stayed with him. Right. Yeah. Now the last poem has numbers. <laughs> this, this is another one of those poems that I might actually have a shot at. <laughs> it's actually a really weird sonnet, just so you know. <laughs> Shakespeare would roll over in his grave, but it is yeah. a summit. Um, and it's, um, this was written, um, this is a real biography story. Um, and I, that's part, that's why I wanted to share this one. And it was actually featured um, as Poem a Day um, with the Academy of American Poets. Um, oh, great. Yeah, last, last year. So you can find this one online. Um, it's called House Empty Speaks Aloud Truth 2018. Um, but what it's about is the House of Happy Walls, which is the house where Charmian uh, lived. She built it and lived in after Jack's death, and she built it with the intention of it becoming a museum. And um, when I first visited the park when I was um, uh, in sixth grade on a field trip, <laughs> um, I went there, and um, that's where I got to know Jack London for the first time. And Charmian's story was completely erased from that house. It was just Jack's story. And so um, in 2018, um, they, I was, I still hadn't, I was finishing my biography and they were redoing the museum and they asked for um, scholars, um, Jacqueline and scholars and Charmian scholars to, you know, share information. And so I gave them my unpublished book as a source. Um, and they said, well, we're going to uh, happily, they used parts of and really brought her story back. But one of the things that they did is they took everything out of the of the house and it was empty. And so um, when it was empty, I asked the park if I could go into the house and look around, you know, because I knew I'd find evidence of physical evidence of stories I couldn't find otherwise. You know, um, I was so excited because they, they were pulling up carpets, like everything they had like added on. And so mm. um, they totally let me do it and nobody was with me. And so, of course, I went into, you know, every crack. So this is. This is the story of that experience um, and the experience of, um, you know, how the park, Jack London State Historic Park 
used to really not tell Charmian's story at all. And they, they, they didn't tell some of the main facts about her life, that she wrote books, that she was, you know, college educated, um, that she published before she even met Jack and traveled the world. All of these things were erased from her story. So this is called House Empty Speaks Loud, A Truth, 2018. One, house made of breath exhaled from wooden ribs. Two, Dale Carnegie's name scribbled on a cream closet door. Three, a nautilus shell eating a light bulb sheds the softest light. Four, calabashes painted gray sway from their ropes whenever the earth shakes. Someone tried to mute their color. Five, she designed the house so that it would never burn. Six, the rock patio has a pyramid-shaped staircase that leads up and over the edge. Seven, left unattended, I slid every window latch open, shimmied through sliding doors. Eight, you could hear the red-breasted robin singing from the second floor. Nine, the silver-painted wallpaper came off on my fingertips. Ten, what they thought was a guest room was actually her office. Eleven, when the state cataloged the house, everyone forgot she was a writer. Twelve, it never burned. Thirteen, bays and oaks move closer to the house. Hear their, their leaves whisper. Fourteen, Though they'll cover the fountain in the sun-filled dining room, its waters will keep broadcasting to future visitors. Uh, wonderful. I th keep thinking of um, the poem, sort of an evocation of then and now, mm. of the present moment in the past that's attempting uh, to be recovered. Um, there's a... Um, biography of Franz Werfel um, published many years ago uh, by a biographer named Stephen uh, Peter Junk. And uh, he, it's a conventional biography in many ways, except that at the end of each chapter, it's in italics, and he talks about visiting the places where oh. his subject lived and wow. what they look like now and what their impact is on him. And I've I've never forgotten that. I'll bet that biography is 20 years old. Oh, I can't wait to read it. So, I mean, yeah. that's, that's something I have to do. You know, I do that while I'm writing the current biography I'm working on. Um, when I go to the places, I have to write about it, you know, and, and process it. So that's, I call it on the road with Sonora Bab, but it's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not, I wasn't going to include it in my book, but I love that he did. I want to read that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Well, yeah, he he later wrote a biographical novel too, uh, believe it or not, about Walt Disney. Really, uh, but quite a different subject. Although Werfel had his time in Hollywood as well as a yeah. you know um, an exile, European exile. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it now or not about what you're working on now. Often I end these podcasts with asking the uh, the biographer what he or she's working on, and sometimes it's a big secret. But in your case, I don't think it is. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, yeah, right now I'm working on a biography on the writer Sonora Bab, who um, wrote an amazing book about the Dust Bowl era called Whose Names Are Unknown. 
which is, you can get from University of Oklahoma Press. Um, so her her book did not get published um, until, you know, it was written in 1939 and it didn't get published until 2003. And that's because, um, and she had been working at the camps and that's because uh, Steinbeck's uh, The Grapes of Wrath came out and um, her publisher, um, Bennett Cerf at um, Random House dropped her contract because um, he didn't think that another book about the Dust Bowl would, you know, would would be would make any money. No one would buy it because they'd already read The Grapes of Wrath. There's those marketing people again. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and it was devastating to her because she'd actually shared her notes with Steinbeck at the camps where she worked. In um, she worked at are in Arvin in California at one of the refugee camps for um, Dust Bowl refugees. And um, so her story is spectacular and I'm, I'm well into it. Um, I've been writing it for the last year and a half. And of course, I'm also writing poetry at the same time because that's what I do. And so part of the project I'm working on for um, poetry for this one is because my family came over to California in the Dust Bowl. And so my grandmother's story was really sneaking through the uh. Sonora Bab. And so I needed to kind of process that so that I could just write Sonora's story. And um, so I started doing an erasure of the Grapes of Wrath. And what that means is I started writing poems from the words I found in the Grapes of Wrath. And I crossed out the other words. So it, it's kind of, it's hard to describe, but um, I'm writing a book-length poem um, about my grandmother and Sonora Bab and um, the kind of myth of the West, you know, this cowboy um, Buffalo Bill um, idea, ideology of what the West was versus the true version of it, of what it was like to be, um, you know, someone who, who left Oklahoma and ended up on the West Coast um, in California in the 30s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a great story. And you know what, Iris? Th this means that we're going to have to do this again. <laughs> well, I would love that. <laughs> okay, good. Is there anything I should have asked you or you want to say before we close this up? No, I just want to thank you for this podcast. I love this, the conversations that you have. And um, I just think you're doing great work here. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's It's thanks to writers like you that I can do it. <laughs> So thanks again. I'm going to post this and, and of course you can broadcast it to the world and to whoever you like. Great. Yeah, I will gladly do that. And it was really great to talk to you, Carl. Yeah, it's wonderful, Iris. Okay. Thanks very much. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.